Well, hello, welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution's distinguished fellows and world-renowned library and archives have been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and endeavor to improve the human condition. The dissemination of our work has had a direct and significant impact on the creation and execution of important policy initiatives in the United States and around the world. As we face a worldwide pandemic and begin to consider ways to move ahead in these uncharted waters, innovative ideas that lead to actionable strategies are more important than ever. During this series, you will hear from our top scholars who will provide you with thoughtful and informed analysis, as well as policy responses to mitigate the potential effects COVID-19 has had on the health and economies of the world. I wanna remind everybody that we will be taking audience questions today and encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from George Osborne, who is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. From 2010 to 2016, George served as Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, where he was a member of the National Security Council. He also served as Britain's first Secretary of State. Prior to that, George was a member of the Parliament. George is currently the editor of the London Evening Standard newspaper. George, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Tom. It's great to be here and great to be at a Hoover event, albeit online. Great. Now, you're speaking to us from England somewhere. Tell us where you are. Uh, I'm in Somerset, uh, where we have had uh, many weeks of good weather, but now it is uh, raining, and maybe that's a sign that uh, the lockdown is starting to end and we're getting back to normal. Here we go. It's gloomy again in England, so all's well with the world. Yeah, we have had a pretty hot month, uh, but sadly, most of us, indeed all of us, have been indoors. Yeah. Uh, George, I want to get, ask you some questions to kind of give our Ameri chiefly American audience a sense of what's going on in Britain. Uh, your Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, returned to work yesterday after being in intensive care with the coronavirus. Uh, with more than 20,000 deaths, the UK is amongst the hardest hit countries in Europe, with a death toll approaching that of Spain and Italy. What's the current national tone in Britain? Well, it's very somber, of course, and uh, the coronavirus has had a huge impact here, as it has in other countries. Um, but I would say there's also been a very strong mood of national solidarity. We've been a very divided nation, actually, in recent years, with a lot of partisan division, particularly over the issue of Brexit. Uh, we've just had a general election where, uh, of course, that was by its nature divisive. But... Um, there's a, there's a lot of support here for the government, uh, and there's a lot of support here for, you know, essentially uh, taking a, a, a national approach to this. In other words, pulling together, communities pulling together. Um, and, you know, in many ways, the prime minister himself, having become uh, a victim of this disease, I think you know, illustrated that it's not a disease that, you know, leaves the elites untouched. I'm not saying that it's a lot, a lot easier if you've got a big garden and, you know, you have job security, but in many ways, the prime minister himself being in intensive care, I think you've sort of dealt with that problem in a crisis that quite often people think, well, it's okay, it doesn't affect the actual decision makers, but he was very clearly affected. Yeah. Uh, George, give us a little sense of the recent history in the UK. What was the official policy of Britain as this virus first became discovered and started to spread? And what is it, what's been the trajectory and what does it look like now? Well, I think that this, is, this has been pretty contentious and I think we'll be subject to inquiries after the event. 
but it feels like in the early period, um, the UK was at least toying with the idea of this herd immunity approach, whereby you uh, allow quite a large number of the population to get the virus on the grounds that that creates the immunity in the, in the population as quickly as possible. As you, you see that with other diseases like uh, measles. Uh, but there was then this study from Imperial College, you know, a very reputable university in the centre of London, uh, which suggested that if that approach was sustained, uh, there would be half a million deaths, or that was the, what the model uh, projected. Uh, and that appears to have led to a change of heart, certainly in the scientific advice that the government was receiving. And then the UK uh, adopted a full lockdown policy but about a week or a week and a half after, for example, France did. Uh, so that's been contested, but I have to say, you know, the mood in the country has been to deal with the problems of today rather than the problems of last month. Yeah, and where are you now? There's an, there's an increased emphasis on testing and social distancing and social tracing, those kinds of activities? Well, there's a big debate, you know, as you get in the US and elsewhere about exit from the lockdown. We don't have, uh, you know, what I would see in the U.S. as being that kind of uh, very libertarian movement, particularly in the west of the country, that um, you know, sort of rails against the government and demands their constitutional rights to move around. We don't have that in the U.K. I'm not aware, really, of many European countries that have that at the moment. But there is, of course, an active debate about how to exit from this, and those, particularly in insecure employment or those who have a small business, are the are people who really want some kind of uh, indication of how we get out of it and I, I, out of this situation and and tracing and testing seems to be absolutely essential to it you need the capacity to test the population so that if someone gets the disease they can be tested and we can know they've had it and they can be isolated and at the same time we need to work out who else they've seen and uh, who else they've met in the last week so that they can be tested um, and that requires uh, quite a lot of technology which the government is developing. None of this is in place yet, but it seems like the only plausible route really out of, a, of an extreme lockdown situation so that you can at least function with the, as a society with the virus at uh, the moment, uncurable. Mm -hmm. we, George, you and I talked about this a little bit, and I, I know that a lot of our viewers uh, are probably asking a question, a lot of people are. You look at, you look at countries like South Korea or Taiwan, maybe even Germany, which, which much more quickly adopted a testing, tracing, quarantine type policy. And you look like countries like the US and Great Britain, uh, and of course Italy, Spain, who didn't. What do, you, what do you think are the chief differences which cause those distinct policy uh, uh, perspectives in those countries? Yeah, I think the Asian societies, from what I can see, having gone through the SARS uh, epidemic, um, over a decade ago, had already in place more infrastructure for dealing with a pandemic, particularly on the technology front. And their populations were willing to, in the case of South Korea, for example, be effectively monitored by mobile phone and policed by mobile phone um, and cell phone. So the Asian countries have more of an infrastructure. I think Germany is a very interesting case from the US's point of view, the UK's point of view, they had exactly the same notice as we did. Uh, very similar population, big urban centers, uh, you know, similar political culture, if you like. Um, I you know, the jury is out on, of course, on how this all plays out. And I think it's 
we mustn't jump prematurely to conclusions because this virus sadly still has a long way to run. Germany does appear to have got on top of it more quickly. Uh, and it feels like that was because they were able to ramp up the capacity on testing very quickly. Again, you know, people have different theories about that. From what I can see, there was a lot of private sector capacity to deliver testing. And in the US, I'm not sure you know, why that wasn't brought online. In the UK, I think there are questions of why you know, our public healthcare system didn't want to engage as, as quickly in, with that uh, private testing capacity that was there. Um, but these will all be, you know, for the inquiry, if you like, that's coming after us. Um, at the moment, you know, all eyes are on trying to exit now and, uh, and find a way to live with the virus. Yeah, George, just turn to the economy. I know you were uh, UK's former finance minister and you had to deal with some of the budget challenges associated with the global financial crisis and, and the latter, latter part of the last decade. What economic impacts do you see for Britain going ahead? Well, Britain, like every um, major economy, is severely impacted by the virus. A statement of the obvious. We've never seen anything like this in wartime, in financial crashes. Uh, there's an expectation that the loss of uh, output in the second quarter of this year will be something like 35%. Uh, that is absolutely staggering. You know, often in a in a recession, you might be down by you know 0.4% or 0.5% in a quarter. Uh, not um, uh, or annualized at one or two percent, not 35 percent. So it's having a massive shock to the economy. The hope and the expectation is that it bounces back, if not in a V shape, in, in more like a U shape, but with a huge amount of government money going in to prop up small businesses that can't open, keep people in work through furlough schemes. Um, yeah, I would say. That kind of looks okay on paper. Uh, you know, the economist model will say you've lost X billion uh, from the uh, your economy, and <clears throat> the government's putting in Y billion, and that's all going to be okay. But in the churn, there are going to be large numbers of people unemployed who don't necessarily return to work, uh, large numbers of small businesses that go bust, uh, or uh, and and no amount of government loans are going to support because ultimately their income has disappeared. So I think there's, for all the economic impact is, is, is going to lead at a micro level to a pretty severe social impact. I see. Uh, Vinette asked a question of whether or not the fiscal stimulus in Britain uh, or the ones announced by the government are enough to overcome the economic crisis. You just mentioned they're not enough to overcome the social crisis, but they're enough to overcome the economic crisis? Yeah, I mean, the British government is throwing a huge amount of money at this, uh, around 10% of GDP. Um, and what's happening, which didn't actually happen in the financial crisis, is a very explicit uh, coordination between the central bank and the treasury, uh, which the central bank governor here, the governor of the Bank of England, has himself described as temporary monetary financing. And that mm -hmm. used to be a complete heresy, uh, you know, in, in orthodox economic circles, uh, right up until, you know, the last year or two. Um, it, it, you know, it's a form of basically the government can issue as much debt as it likes because the central bank's going to buy it. I don't think that's sustainable in the long term. Uh, and I think one of the kind of big challenges, whilst there might be a consensus around the world that this is a good thing to do in the short term, it's certainly being done in the US uh, and to a degree in the Eurozone, uh, it's not really a sustainable model in the longer term. And therefore, we're going to have to plot exits from these uh, these economic interventions. And my prediction is 
that's going to be very difficult for democratic governments. For example, the furlough scheme, you know, it's, it's easy to introduce and in many ways has been a brilliant policy here to keep people in work. Exiting from the furlough scheme, which is very expensive, is going to be hard because the moment you do that, inevitably some of the people who are furloughed are going to be made unemployed and no elected government is going to be happy taking that step. Yeah. But unless you do, your fiscal problems are going to mount. And so that, to me, is going to be the challenge in the second half of this year. Yeah. As you, as you look ahead and see the challenges uh, caused, we had a couple questions that I think ask us to balance this. Uh, Bert asked the question, in retrospect, do you feel it was wise to close down Britain's economy because of the pandemic? And then Phil, on the other side, asked, are you concerned that all this money chasing a limited amount of goods might cause inflation? Yeah, I think um, I don't think really Britain had, or indeed any other Western country had an had an option. You know, I think the if you had just allowed widespread business failure uh, and widespread unemployment, because you had by an act, deliberate act of policy shut down the country. And remember, it's the government has decided people can't go out, people can't congregate. It's true that probably people wouldn't be congregating anyway. But these are active acts of government policy. And if you don't compensate those businesses or try and provide economic support, I think that would have been a much worse situation, which ultimately would have caused more economic uh, damage. In terms of inflation, look, I think the impact at the moment is disinflationary uh, because of the oil price and you know everything that's going on. Um, there's quite an interesting study done that after pandemics, quite often and plagues in our history through many centuries, it's we've had disinflation afterwards uh, but i think because of that monetary financing that's going on that is really something you have to re uh, watch and signs of the re-emergence of inflation uh, will prove a real challenge to the central bank policy yeah george while we have you here and you're a former finance minister of uk could you look around the rest of the continent over there and tell us uh, how you see it what's what's your perspective on it talk about germany france if you would uh, italy spain and maybe this, uh, the countries in the southern part of the EU? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, and people will know this, uh, Italy has been very badly hit. I think they had the very bad luck of being the first of the Western nations to, uh, you know, see, have the impact of the virus. And that gave everyone two weeks notice, <clears throat> essentially in the rest of the developed world, of what was coming. And, and with the exception of Italy and possibly parts of Spain, Everyone else has managed to avoid this terrible situation where the healthcare system was completely overwhelmed and doctors were having to triage and say, you can't have a ventilator because you're over 70 or you're over 60. Um, you know, certainly in the case of the UK, I think the government can rightly say a success, despite all the strains and the heroic efforts of the uh, staff of our national health service system is that they haven't been, uh, you know, the, the, the capacity has been there in the, in the emergency wards. Um, that's broadly true in other, say, in other countries. It, there have been some notable successes. We talked about uh, Germany already. Greece, interestingly enough, is a country you know, normally associated with poor governance, and clearly one of the poorer members of Europe, and appears to be doing pretty well here. And I think the, the example that most people here are fascinated by is Sweden, where Sweden is the only country really in Europe that has not gone for a lockdown. Um, uh, certainly as uh, draconian as the ones we're experiencing here and elsewhere, and has allowed, for example, restaurants to stay open, 
and appears, if not to have a dramatically lower infection rate, nevertheless does not have a, a, a higher infection rate. So, or I should say mortality rate. So a lot of people looking at Sweden and some unsung success stories like Greece, Britain and France, I would say at the moment, you know, middle of the pack. A couple questions relating to the consequences of a, a British policy in this matter. Dory asked a question, what short-term economic consequences will have the greatest long-term effects in the UK and what proposals would you suggest to mitigate them? So are we going too far in some areas and it's going to create problems? On the other hand, Susan asked a question, what are the long-term ramifications of these government stimulus programs? What kinds of tax levels will we be facing in five years, 10 years? Yeah, well, uh, you know, once once the government's in the economy, it's quite hard to get it out. <clears throat> As I was explaining with these furlough schemes, difficult to withdraw them, difficult to uh, claim back all the money that's been lent to small businesses if they can't afford to do so. And there'll be pressure on government to write some of those loans off uh, and the pressure for government to roll over some of those loans. So hard once you're in. We haven't yet in the UK got to either the situation where the governments are buying equity stakes in large companies like airlines. And, and that, again, means government involvement. Um, necessary, but I think people should be very open-eyed about what it means, which is a, an ongoing expense for the taxpayer uh, and political involvement in, in aspects of our economy. Once the government takes a stake in an airline, it might say, that it wants to run that at arm's length, like we used to say we wanted to run the banks at arm's length when I was chancellor, but then I would get all sorts of questions about the bonus of the CEO and why the bank wasn't lending to this business or that business. I think you may find the same with airlines. If they try and cut a non-profit, an unprofitable route to some important, you know, just to a community, a remote community in the country, I can imagine the political pressure, hold on, we bailed this airline out. Why is it not operating that route? Just a small example of, uh, what happens uh, going forward. I think they're gonna big issue, the two big issues to watch. One is unemployment. Certainly for the US and the UK, we've not had the kind of mass unemployment that we're seeing um, now, uh, apparently. And even if many of those people get their jobs back later this year, there will still be a large number of people on unemployment rolls. And then you're into classic issues of how you get people back into the workforce. Um, and there will also be the issues which no one wants to hear at the moment of debt and deficit which you know, I had to tackle uh, because countries will have debt to GDP ratios of 100%, deficits of 15, 16%, not sustainable in the medium to long term. And they'll need to set out credible fiscal plans because, you know, frankly, these countries, our country, your country, is going to be poor at the end of all this and, and can't afford as much as it used to be able to afford. Interesting. Um, George, Great Britain left uh, uh, the European Union last January and there was a schedule to work out the details of the exit going forward, the so-called Brexit. Uh, how has COVID-19 affected that process? Well, Britain has left the EU in January. I think it's an interesting what if in history if we hadn't left the EU and you know, COVID had hit. Uh, but we did leave just before it struck. So you know, that for me is, and I was someone who was against uh, Britain leaving the EU, uh, that for me is, you know, the, the, the one way, the one way door we walk through and that's the really big decision the country has taken. Um, the second order question is what's the trade relationship with the EU going forward? At the moment we're still shadowing the EU's regime, but we need a trade deal by the end of the year. Um, I, there's a lot of talk that that should either be delayed or that it's not going to happen or that 
there'll be, uh, to use the expression here, we'll go off the cliff in the sense that we won't have any kind of training arrangements with our neighbors. <clears throat> I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical uh, that, uh, that you know, those bad events are gonna turn out because I think in the end, there will be a deal. It won't really be much of a deal. It'll be a deal to go on dealing, if you like, an agreement to go on having a talk about agreements in different sectors like finance or aviation or agriculture, but they'll be able to hold up a piece of paper at the end of the year and say, we've got an agreement because it's basically in everyone's interests to go on talking. It's in the interest of the European Union. Uh, they're not gonna be in great economic shape. It's in our interest. We're not gonna be in great economic shape. So, uh, agreement to go on talking which is uh, famous in european union uh circles i presume yeah, they're very good at uh, spinning the conversation along <laughs> or, or at least you know i think what's interesting the european union is usually not the force that pushes a country out of it you know it was not the eu that uh kind of pulled the plug on brexit and forced britain out it was britain chose to leave when i was involved you know, the EU did not, the Eurozone didn't push Greece out. It, 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 it set conditions in which Greece might want to leave, but, uh, and I think that will be the case uh, this time around. One observation, Tom, you know, the European Union is looking awfully like the Eurozone these days, yeah. partly because of Britain's departure, or our own, you know, our own contribution to this. But the Eurozone is continuing to integrate. They've taken big steps in this crisis to mutualize their obligations, despite early uh, you know, um, an early lack of neighbourly policy. Uh, now the European Central Bank is doing that. And the Eastern European countries that were brought into the EU uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall as part of a big Western push supported by the US to bring them into the Western family of nations. Uh, you know, they look increasingly, partly because they themselves are behaving in odd ways, partly because the Eurozone is consuming all the energies, they're being kind of pushed to the sides of uh, European Union policy. Interesting. I want to remind everybody that you're listening to George Osborne, a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, and that you can find more research by Hoover Fellows on the COVID-19 crisis at hoover.org. Uh, George Chantel asked a question about China, and the question is, what's the UK's stance on China, particularly in terms of China as a formal and judicial way taking accountability for COVID the COVID-19 spread? I believe Germany has or intends to present China with a bill for some of the damages associated with that. So how how is how is how are the how's the European Union and Great Britain viewing China these days? Well, the, the Europe uh, Europe, including the UK, had not taken as confrontational approach as the US had in recent years. <clears throat> we were not engaged in a trade war with China, um, and we had not blocked companies like Huawei being involved in our telecom system. Doesn't mean that uh, Britain and other countries weren't raising all sorts of concerns about Chinese behavior towards their own population uh, and indeed uh, their influence elsewhere. But I think what that virus has done is it, there's no doubt, you know, whether you think this is the right or wrong, uh, it has given a push to the kind of China skeptics, if you like, the people saying we should be much more aggressive towards China. Um, on the grounds that uh, the argument they make is that China was not transparent about the disease, even if it acted quickly once it was, and now is, you know, appearing to use the opportunity, if you like, to uh, expand its influence. I would just say, you know, and as someone who's, who, I guess, took a more kind of classic Henry Kissinger view that we should try and engage China uh, rather than end up with it being our enemy, 
that uh, you know, if you know the staggering thing that has been lacking in this crisis, sadly, has been a kind of, any kind of really coordinated international response. We've not had the big G20 statement, you know, the the uh, efforts by the world to help the poorer countries, the efforts by the world to put resources into the IMF or indeed the World Health Organization. And if your our attitude is we're not going to deal with China, the world's second largest economy, soon to be the largest, the world's emerging second superpower, then really none of these institutions are going to be effective going forward. And we, you know, in my view, we're going to find a way of living with China, the superpower, rather than wishing it, it were not going to be the case. The, um, I mean, that, that's easier said than done, right, George? Some of the things that we would have to live with, live with appear to be repugnant to Western values, like the, the approaches towards liberty and freedom in Hong Kong and Taiwan and those kinds of areas. How do you, how do you address that tension? Well, I, I think you, you know, this, I mean, the, the policy, this was the policy pursued by uh, Democrat and Republican administrations still very recently. And of course now, and this is not just about the US administration, this is true also of the Democrats in Congress, there's a much more hostility towards China. I, you know, I'm all for calling China out where its behavior is unacceptable, whether it's towards the citizens of Western China, whether it's uh, interference in uh, Hong Kong or uh, let alone Taiwan. Um, so I'm all for that, but, I, but I, I, I do ask the question, you know, either we are prepared in the West for an enormous effort at containment, akin to the Cold War, over many decades with always the risk of uh, horrific conflagration. Uh, or we need to find a way for China to become that responsible global citizen. That does not mean letting China have its own way, but where China asks for legitimate things and legitimate roles equal to its power and size, then we should consider giving them that or accommodating them. So, I think you can you can draw lines. You can be very clear about what's unacceptable uh, without having a completely blanket policy, which you know, frankly, I just don't think is going to work. You know, unless, as I say, the United States and its allies, first of all, are going to work more closely together rather than fight each other. B are going to work with the institutions like NATO and the European Union that were the bulwarks of the uh, defence against communism. C are going to commit enormous resources just to propping up the neighbors of China. Uh, remember, we, uh, the US pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was an attempt to do that. You know, we better find some other approach to China. Um, and without getting too pretentious about it, although you know, this is uh, you know, a res very respected academic institution, the Thucydides trap, as it's called, how you deal with the rising power, has yeah. been a real problem throughout history, and most people have got it wrong. You know, we didn't handle the rise of Germany 100 years ago, um, you know, Sparta didn't handle the rise of Athens back in ancient times. Yeah, the only the only known example is uh, Britain handled the rise of the U.S. properly. Well, we let you get on with it after you had <laughs> to go your own way. <laughs> hey, uh, George, I have some even tougher questions here. Uh, John asked, uh, "Do you think all the government, uh, all the global government intervention, will lead to a new acceptance of socialism?" And Ryan asks, it seems the UK Conservative Party has been moving away from the principles of economic freedom pushed by Margaret Thatcher. Are the UK Conservatives now a post-Thatcherite party? Um, well, first of all, um, on socialism, I think certainly, you know, I wouldn't characterize it as socialism. There's much greater government involvement in the economy at the moment 
in all of our countries, they're employing large numbers of private sector people through these furlough programs, and they're acting as banks to the small business sector. Uh, I think if the exits aren't carefully signposted and embarked upon uh, later this year, then you will end up with a much larger state. Um, and of course, you know, every crisis, and this is no exception, is used by those to, by used by people to advance their ideological positions that existed before. <laughs> um, so that is a challenge. Um, and, you know, I think there is a response to it. I think, you know, for, as a conservative, you know, I think the path going forward, once we have got on top of this disease, will be to try and stimulate enterprise, stimulate the private sector, um, make our countries go to places for international investment uh, so that the small businesses that went bust can either rejuvenate or new small businesses can take their place and new private sector jobs could be created. Rather than leaving, and this is a risk for our economies, leaving everything in a kind of zombie status where people are on endless furlough programs and they're neither employed nor unemployed, yeah. And you have, you know, large numbers of business loans that have essentially, you know, um, gone bad, led by the government to companies they won't foreclose on because they don't want to. Uh, but as a result, you have these sort of companies that are neither alive nor dead. At the moment, that is very acceptable. Indeed, I strongly support it because we're in the middle of a crisis where we've shut down public gathering and public economic activity. But if in a year's time you're in this situation, you're going to have, I'm afraid, a much slower recovery than we need to have. Yeah. And you'll have much, much more akin to what happened after the financial crisis of a sort of zombie, you know, bad loans, banks not really want to recognize those loans, balance sheets remain impaired, and you don't get the rejuvenation which you'd like to see in an enterprise economy. You want to comment on whether the Conservative Party in the UK is a post-Thatcherite post -Thatcher, party? Well, it's post-Thatcherite in the sort of obvious sense that, you know, she, you know, sadly has died and is, is, is no longer with us. Um, I think it is true to say that, you know, the Conservative Party here has moved in a direction, you know, which was, you know, less concerned about smaller government, smaller business tax, more interested in larger amounts of public spending, um, you know, withdrew from the EU when joining the EU had been a Conservative government's policy and had been the policy of previous Conservative governments, more, I guess, sort of pulling with, you know, within our borders. Um, now, that's still very much contested inside the Conservative Party and indeed, even in the personalities of the people who lead it, like uh, our Prime Minister, who also talks about global Britain and free trade and being pro-immigration. You know, it's it's been a bit of a basket of contradictions, but it has no doubt been politically successful, particularly in parts of the country where the Conservative Party had not done so well in kind of uh, the former industrial areas, but at the price of what we would call in Britain some middle-class support. Um, yeah. Now, I think the virus changes all of that because we're now, we've got the handling of the virus, government's very popular in dealing with it, but all the politics is gonna be about the economy after this. And yeah. I think, you know, the Conservatives had hoped they didn't have to talk about the economy. Indeed, that was sort of explicitly the message, right. talking about other things in the economy. I'm afraid the economy, has, as it always does, has a way of coming back front and centre. Yeah, got it. George, I want to take advantage of your current role as editor of the Evening Standard London Daily Newspaper. How has the COVID-19 crisis uh, kind of accelerated the competition between print media and electronic media? Well, I think all newspapers, and the Standard's no exception, and 
and all media organizations that are privately owned, of course in Britain we have the BBC, uh, you know, have found this a really difficult time because we are one of the most uh, challenged industries. Our advertising revenues have collapsed across the industry uh, because, you know, think of your adverts, they are airlines and, and cinema openings and theater go shows and so on. Um, so that's a big challenge. It's affected online as well as print. Um, and I think there's also been a challenge for the media industry, which is an, an editor such as myself, which is how do you well, how do you kind of navigate the crisis as an edit in an editorial line? You know, I wanted to be supportive of the government, but a front page that every day says you know Boris Johnson's brilliant is a, you know gets a little dull, and there are serious questions to ask. But at the same time, I think you want to reflect that people understand that this is a very difficult and unprecedented situation, and many of these politicians are working flat out and doing their best and. Of course, some things are going to go wrong because it's so unprecedented and so big a problem. So I think some of the media have got that wrong and they're into the sort of you broke your promise or you've done a U-turn or kind of classic media charges against politicians, which I don't think resonate at the moment because people understand that the people at the top of government are facing a very, very difficult situation. Yeah. Uh, George, George, in the US, the big internet platforms, Facebook and Google and other other platforms are coming under increasing criticism about the content that exists on their programs. They've always tried to eschew or avoid editorial responsibilities. But um, Mr. Zuckerberg, I think the other day, said they would monitor more closely the information about COVID-19 that appears on their websites. They're monitoring more closely the information that comes expressly from governments like Russia or China to try to influence elections. What advice would you give the big internet platforms about how to best dispatch their editorial duties? Well, the truth is they hate to be told this, but they are editors. You know, I'm an editor of a newspaper and, you know, I make a decision with my team at the Evening Standard every day, what goes on what pages. <clears throat> we try and avoid, obviously, incorrect information um, and inflammatory information that, uh, you know, um, is, is not based in fact and so on. So we make editorial calls. Those platforms are making editorial calls. For a start, you know, they should be and they try to block illegal content. Um, they also uh, have moved to try and prevent disinformation in the US election that might be promoted by the Russian government, for example. Um, when it comes to healthcare, it's kind of complicated. Any newspaper would not, put, would not publish, you know, quack science that it was completely unproven and might cause a lot of danger to people. Or most, you know, say any newspaper with any repute would not. Um, but we should reflect genuine disagreement in amongst scientific opinion about something as novel as this virus. Um, I think Facebook has got a difficult job, which is, you know, it shouldn't be promoting theories that really have no credible support anywhere. And that's, for example, uh, issues around anti-vax. But at the same time, they're not allowing any kind of debate about the origins of the coronavirus, how it might be developing, potential treatments for it. When so much is known in the unknown in the scientific community about it, then I think they're doing us a disservice. I'm not saying it's easy to do that, but being an editor isn't easy. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, Rich asked the following question, is the English National Health Service better equipped to deal with the virus crisis than the US system of private insurance? Well, I think the, you know, the, the, there's no debate in Britain about um, replacing the National Health Service. Um, you know, and it's an extraordinary event every Thursday night in this country where 
communities come out and applaud the healthcare workers and applaud the NHS. <clears throat> and I think having a big public healthcare system does have lots of advantages because you can have a single policy and it and it avoids the you know the big problem I would identify with US healthcare, which is that of course some of the poorest, most vulnerable people can find themselves without adequate healthcare cover. You know, that said, I think there will be questions for such a large bureaucracy as the National Health Service about how it went about procuring protective equipment. Uh, at the moment, you know, the questions are all aimed at the government minister at the top of the organization, but this is like an organization of one, uh, one and a half million people. And, you know, that minister doesn't go and order all the surgical gowns and so on. Yeah, and indeed, the NHS operates largely independent of those ministers these days. So questions around big procurement, procurement of testing, um, uh, and, and in, you know, I note that in Germany, one of the reasons they've been more successful is that they were, it appears, or appeared to be more successful, they were quicker at bringing in the private sector's testing capacity in that country. So I think, you know, brilliant as the NHS has been, in this crisis and, and heroic as the doctors and nurses and others have been, there will be lessons to be learned, definitely. Outstanding. George, uh, we've had a great time with the discussion today. Thank you so much. Any parting words for the audience? Well, obviously stay safe and, and I hope uh, you get through this difficult period. Uh, but the one thing that's you know, always surprises on the upside is human innovation. And even six weeks into this, we're finding ways to operate, finding ways to communicate. And this online event is a very, very good example of that. And congratulations to Hoover for organizing it. Great. George, thank you very much. Uh, please stay safe and I look forward to seeing you uh, on Stanford's campus soon. Thank you. Great. I want to remind everybody that our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Thursday, April 30th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern time with Larry Diamond. The topic of the conversation will be COVID-19 and democracy around the world. Larry's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and at Stanford's Freeman Svogli Institute for International Studies. He's advised the USAID, World Bank, the UN, the State Department, and other governmental and non-governmental agencies dealing with governance and development. Larry's recent books include China's Influence and American Interest, Ill Wind, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. And you'll find Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I want to thank you all for joining us today and hope to see you next time. Please stay healthy and safe. Goodbye.